The title of uh, this morning's sermon on this International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church is When Suffering Comes. When Suffering Comes. And the text I've chosen to speak from is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. It's page 1731 in the church Bibles here. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, page 1731. Verses 12 through 19 is a unit in and of itself where Peter writing to suffering Christians is encouraging them that as you face suffering, make sure that you suffer in a way that brings glory to God. Verse 19, he says, So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator, and continue to do good. So he wants people to suffer well. That's that's his whole appeal. We're going to look at only verses 12 through 13. Because in verses 12 and 13, Peter urges believers to display a twofold response when they face suffering. Twofold response. Response number one, he says, Don't be surprised when you run into suffering for Jesus. Don't be surprised. That's the first thing. And second, he says believers should be joyful when that suffering comes and during that time of suffering. So two two points basically. Don't be surprised. Verse 12, verse 13, rejoice. Rejoice. I hope you see these two as I read verses 12. And 13, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised. It's a command. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That's where I bring up that first response. Don't be surprised. Look at verse 13 for the second response. Be joyful during times of suffering. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised, but be joyful when you suffer for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray these are commands that does not sound appealing to our natural flesh. Even for those who are indwelt by your spirit, These are hard. But yet you've given these commands in your word, which means you've also promised to give us the strength to obey them. So help us to increase in our faith as we work our way through this passage so that we might respond well when suffering comes so that you would be glorified in and through our suffering. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. By the mid-1500s, the Bible had been fully translated into English. For several centuries, the Bible was in Latin. Common people could not understand. But due to the efforts of people like uh, John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, the Bible was translated fully into English. And the town of Hadley, 
was one of the first towns in England to get the Bible fully completed in English. And there was a pastor of that town, uh, a pastor by the name Rowland Taylor. He's a faithful man of God, a faithful preacher who preached the word of God. He knew what would happen if he was going to be preaching from the English Bible because the control was under the Catholic Church and they would not allow people to use the English Bible. But he kept preaching faithfully. And as expected, he was, a, he was ordered to appear before the bishop in London. He was accused of being a heretic and was given a chance. You can change your mind, recant. Quit preaching the Bible, we'll let you live. If not, the only outcome is you're going to be burnt at the stake. This was his response. I will not depart from preaching the truth and I thank God for calling me to be worthy to suffer for his word. Immediately the sentence was passed. He was to be taken back to the town of Hadley to be burnt alive. Along the way he was so joyful. Anyone watching would have thought he was going to attend a wedding. He's rejoicing. His words to the guards who were taking him there. His words were constant words of appeal. Repent. Repent and turn to Jesus Christ. It would make the guards weep because they saw his passion for Jesus Christ and his love for lost sinners. They were amazed to see him so steadfast, so fearless and so joyful and so glad to even give his life for Jesus Christ. When they reached the place where they would be burned, Taylor said to all his congregation who were gathered around there with tears in their eyes, this is what he said, I have taught you nothing but God's holy word and those lessons that I have taken out of God's blessed book, the Holy Bible. I have come here this day to seal those truths with my blood. He knelt down, prayed, and then went to the stake. He kissed the stake, stood against it with his hands folded together and his eyes looking toward heaven, and he started praying. They bound him with chains and several men put the sticks in the place. And as they lit the fire, he looked up to heaven once again and called upon the Lord saying, Merciful Father of heaven, for Jesus Christ, my Savior's sake, receive my soul into thy hands. He stood there in the flames without crying, without moving, his hands folded together. And one of the men in the group couldn't bear to see this. So he took an axe, ran towards him and hit him on the head so that he would not have to suffer for too long. It was an act of compassion. Taylor died instantly, his corpse falling into the fire. Now when we hear a story like this, what it teaches us, people like Rowland Taylor took to heart Words like the words that I just read earlier from 1 Peter 4 verses 12 through 13 and other passages of scripture that talk about the call to suffer well for Jesus Christ. We look at these verses. We will not deny it's God's word. But we look at these verses and we'll apply that to someone else somewhere. We even 
see these videos. We get moved, we get prayed, we pray for them. But somehow, we feel suffering is for those people in persecuted nations. But God's word has a universal application. God wants us to take these passages so that we can be prepared to suffer well when that suffering comes. Various forms for us. Sometimes it could be a suffering in your home, in your workplace, your neighborhoods. For some people it's a suffering in the church because as they see the church moving from the word of God and the church that they were a part of for many years, so they want to not see that happen. So they stand for the truth. And they suffer. Some of you may have had that experience. I know I have. So how do we suffer well? Peter tells us here. Two things. Two things to remember. Don't be surprised and rejoice. How can we do that? That's what we're going to look at. Times are changing and they're changing rapidly. We may think we are safe, but who knows how quickly things could change. It's best to prepare well. What is that saying? Uh, Failing to plan is planning to fail. So if we are not planning to suffer well, we will not suffer well. It's a battle even when when we do plan. And the actual suffering comes, intense suffering comes. Maybe some of you are going through that suffering now. Maybe you need to hear this to strengthen your faith so that you can suffer and die well. Notice what Peter says, first of all, the thing that we need to do when suffering comes. Don't be surprised, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Believers, he says, expect to suffer if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. The normal human reaction is to display shock or surprise when we go through trials. But that should not be the case for those who profess to be followers of Jesus. Peter says, when you expect suffering, you won't be surprised when it comes. You won't feel something strange is happening. Where did Peter get this thought? Remember, this was the same Peter in the Gospels who rebuked Jesus when he talked about the cross. Peter was not a fan of suffering. But the same Peter, after the day of Pentecost, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, now is telling others, Expect to suffer. Expect. Where did Peter get this from? Obviously, we know it's from the Holy Spirit, but what kind of truths did the Holy Spirit impress upon him to make him write this? Because Peter remembered the words of Jesus Christ. Remember, Peter was one of the close disciples of Jesus. Three plus years, he walked with Jesus. So he heard Jesus talk about the call to expect suffering for following him repeatedly. Let me read a few passages for you. In his very first sermon, what we call as a Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5 verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, not if, 
when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Because of righteousness is the same as because of me. Living a life for Christ means that's the kind of right life we ought to live. And when you pursue that kind of a lifestyle, you will face suffering. You will face insults, rejection. That's Jesus' promise here, so to speak. You want to, you want to live in the kingdom of heaven? Then expect suffering in one fashion or the other. Not necessarily every believer will go through the same intensity of suffering. It varies, obviously. Experience tells us. But if you are a child of God, you will face suffering to some degree or the other. Later in Matthew 10, cost of discipleship. This is what Jesus says in verses 34 through 36. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wait a minute, you are the Prince of Peace. Say, I've not come to bring peace. What Jesus is saying here is this. I've come to bring peace between those who put their faith in me. They can have peace with God and themselves. But that very act of them coming out of darkness will bring a division. For I come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Sometimes, that persecution is intense coming right from the same household. Daily suffering, daily rejection, daily mocking. And sometimes it can come from the hands of those who profess to be Christians. That makes it even hard. And when the same Peter asked Jesus what the reward would be for all this. Okay, what do I get out of this, Jesus? When we've left everything to follow you, what do we get? This was Jesus' words, Mark 10, verses 29 and 30. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or feels for me and the gospel. You turned your back on everything. People, possessions, position, everything. You turn your back because you cherish me so much. He says, they will not fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, talking about all these spiritual blessings and a new spiritual family, the church, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. Persecutions in this age and the fullness of eternal life in the age to come. Jesus clearly mentioned suffering is part of the package. Not only did Jesus warn his followers about the reality of suffering, but his own life displayed that even he would not be exempt from suffering. How often Jesus was called a blasphemer, a glutton, a drunkard, a deceiver, and even child of the devil. And ultimately, they physically beat him up, whipped him, put those cruel nails in his body and got rid of him. So Jesus' life itself shows he himself was not exempt from suffering. That's why Jesus 
reminds us, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. John chapter 15, verse 20. So Peter heard these messages from Jesus again and again and again of believers going through suffering from the lips of Jesus himself. That's why he talks a lot about suffering in this first letter. In chapter 2, verse 21, this is what he says. People say, what's my calling in life? I'm a believer now. What am I called? Here's one of the calling. Verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Well, that's not what I like to hear. That doesn't make me feel good, is what the Christian says. But that's what it says. Look at the text. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. The only other place in scriptures where the same kind of language Jesus uses is in John 13, where he talks about, I've left you an example, feet washing, humble service. Serve others humbly and be willing to suffer. The natural man does not like that. Humble service. I want to serve in his prominence. And when my name is there, it's all glamour. I want people to see me. Jesus says, no. no. Take the position of a lowly slave. And here, I suffered leaving you an example. Suffering is inevitable if you're a follower of Jesus. Not just Peter, even other New Testament writers mention the inevitability of believers undergoing suffering for living as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, those familiar words in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. The key is desire to live a godly life. Not all who profess to be believers. Many profess to be believers. Many, Lord, Lord, they will say, Jesus said. But when suffering comes, they're willing to take the shortcut right away. You want a godly life, but that godly life cannot be on your and my terms. Apostle John tells us in 1 John 3.13, Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Again, like Peter, he says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. You're going to face rejection when you really live for Jesus Christ. You read the book of Acts, rest of the New Testament Letters after Acts, you see how the church constantly is exposed to suffering. Ever since the fall, there's a constant enmity between Satan's people and God's people. In the Old Testament, that was the case. Beginning of the New Testament. And for 2,000 years, church history tells us suffering has been the lot for those who call Jesus as their Lord and master. Satan hates Jesus. He cannot get at Jesus anymore. So what does he do? He incites his people to go after Jesus' followers. And at times, back to First Peter 4, Peter says these trials can be very intense. That's why he calls that as a fiery ordeal. That word fiery means burning. In the Old Testament, that word was used to describe a furnace. Revelation 18 it describes the burning of Babylon. 
literal burning. So not only is a Christian to expect suffering, but at times it could be very intense is what Peter is saying. At one point you may ask this question, what is the point of such intense suffering? If Jesus took all that suffering, why do I also need to go through so much? Peter gives the answer in verse 12. That this fiery ordeal has come on you to test you. That's the reason. It has come on you to test you, to test if your faith is genuine, to test if it will if that faith will stand during intense time of suffering, to test and see if Jesus is the most precious thing to you when that suffering comes or will you turn your back and go back to the old ways. Because that's the test again and again. Do I treasure Jesus more than anything else? More than my comforts, my relationships, my money, my everything? Do I treasure him? Or when the price is a little too high, will I turn my back? Earlier in this letter, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, Peter talks about the same thing. Trials come to benefit us, to see if our faith is genuine. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. All kinds of trials. These have come, these trials, he says, have come so that, there's a reason, so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. What he's telling is this. Just as gold goes through the fire to be, to first of all prove that it is gold, as well as to get rid of all the impurities, your faith is being tested to see if it's the genuine one, the real deal. And as it goes through trials, it also gets purified. When you go through trials, you realize, Lord, I was clinging to this sin. Lord, I was cherishing that sin. How wrong I was. Trials have a refining influence. They point us how wrong I was in cherishing when the times were good. I turned my back on God. I used those blessings that he gave me and I turned them as my idol. How often you hear people say, well, right now in this phase I'm busy. I don't have time for the word of God. I don't have time for prayer. And if you pinpoint the reason, it's because of something or someone in your life that's holding all the attention. You've made that something or someone an idol. Beware. God will strike right at those idols because God is a jealous God. A good preacher, they say, prepares people for times of suffering. That's what I'm hoping to do here. I want you, I want me to suffer and die well. And when our faith is genuine, Jesus returns. He would say, well done, good and faithful slave. Not servant, slave. We're bought, owned, possessed by him. It'll be worth it. What if we stand before Jesus one day and he says, get away from me. 
So when we endure now, when we see trials from that perspective, it will be worth it. It will result in praise, glory, and honor. That's what Peter earlier said. So back to First Peter 4. So he says, it's come to test you. And this has been the case all along in Psalm 66, verse 10. The psalmist says, for you, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. Going through the fire purifies metals, proves if they're genuine or not. Same time, going through trials should purify us. Trials reveal who we really cherish. Suffering is a needed part for the believer's part of the believer's life. How else can we become like Jesus to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to do good to those who hate us? Apart from trials that make us more and more like our Savior. When believers fail to understand that trials, even if there's a particular trial you're going through right now, if you fail to understand that trial is designed by God to make you become more like Jesus Christ, you will act as though something strange has happened to you. That's why Peter says, don't be surprised. There's a purpose behind the trial. Many professing Christians We see them so surprised, shocked, angry, disappointed with God. Sometimes even turn their backs. They think, or at least they were taught that the Christian life is supposed to be a problem-free life. Great health, a lot of wealth, success at every turn. That's not what the Bible teaches. God can provide. You give, you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, no matter what. And that's why they're surprised when suffering comes. That's why it's important for believers to be reminded of the truth that suffering will come. Don't be surprised. Jesus himself demanded people count the cost to follow him. He was never interested in making half-hearted disciples who will flee when they have a price to pay for their faith. Half-hearted disciples are those who respond to Jesus on an emotional basis, like the seed that fell on stony ground. No root, so when the heat rises, the plant perishes. In the same way, when persecution comes because of the word, Mark 4 verse 17, they fall away. Oh, this, this is not what I signed up for. You mean when I follow Jesus, I cannot date an unbeliever? You mean when I follow Jesus, I cannot watch pornography? You mean when I follow Jesus, I cannot take vengeance on those who've hurt me? It doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't feed my ego. Fall away. Fall away. On the other hand, those who do count the cost are the ones who recognize their utter sinfulness because of the work of the Spirit is done in their heart. They realize they're in a miserable situation and they come on their knees. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Luke 18, verse 13. They're like the seed sown on good soil and they will endure when faced with trials because the Holy Spirit indwells them and empowers them. They know the Christian life is a life of suffering 
one writer recently said the Christian life is a it's a long line of disappointment. He didn't mean that there is no joy. Of course there is joy. But this is not where we are going to have all our needs, all our desires fulfilled. That's the idea. So the first thing Peter tells us to remember, expect to suffer. But that's not all. He tells us a second thing. He wants us to be joyful when suffering comes. Look at verse 13. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Rejoice. Keep on rejoicing. That should be the response. Again, where did he learn this from? He remembered the words of Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew 5, 12, Jesus said, Rejoice and be glad when the suffering comes because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice. Rejoice. You're in First Peter. Go back to your left, just one book, the book of James. And I want you to turn to James chapter 1. Just look at verses 2 and 3. Page 1721. Many believe James was the first New Testament book to be written. It's a letter. AD 48. Some think it's First Thessalonians, but almost majority think if it's James. But even if it's not the first one of the first, let's, for our discussion today, assume that it's the first letter. I tend to take the stand James as the first one. If that's the case, it's the first letter Jesus is writing through the Spirit to his church. Guess what the first command he gives to the church? Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever, not if, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance and he goes on and on. What's the first command to the church? Consider it pure joy. What is the first reaction that the church has when it goes through suffering? Depression. Why me? Let's not pretend. That's how I tend to respond. Why me? Why so much? Why relentless suffering? Now, are we to rejoice for the suffering itself? The Bible doesn't commend that. It always talks about what the suffering is intended to produce. Testing of your faith produces what? Perseverance, good character. Become more and more like Jesus. Purifies us. But here, Peter knows it's a challenge for us to rejoice. He knows. He's human, like you and me. So he gives two reasons, two motivations, if you want to look at it that way. Two motivations that will help us to practice the rejoicing attitude when going through suffering. Here's motivation. One, to rejoice when suffering for Jesus. First part of verse 13. Because of this, he says, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Stop right there. You rejoice because you share in the sufferings of Jesus himself. The New Living Translation translates the first part as Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering. You're co-participants with Christ. Now, please understand, our suffering is not for the provision of the gospel. We don't suffer 
for the gospel's establishment. That suffering that Jesus paid for our sins, that's unique and only he can suffer. Nobody else can share in that. Our suffering is for the propagation of the gospel. His suffering for the provision of the gospel, ours is for the propagation, the spreading of it. We live out the gospel truths, we proclaim the gospel truths, and that will bring suffering. So in that sense, we suffer for along with Jesus. Jesus suffered because he lived a godly life. And when you and I strive to live that godly life, we share with Jesus in his suffering. And when we have that understanding, we will rejoice because, Lord, you have called me to share in your suffering. We rejoice when Jesus says, you will share in my glory. Great, Lord. That I will sign up for. But Jesus also says, no, just as it was in my case, suffering first, glory later. Should not the Messiah have suffered first and then enter into his glory? He told the disciples on the road to Emmaus on the day of his resurrection. Luke 24. Same thing. Suffering now, glory later. If we want to participate in that glory, we have to be sharers in his suffering now. In Acts 5, the, the same Peter, Peter apostles, they're all called for preaching the gospel. The Sanhedrin calls them, says, hey, listen, you shouldn't be doing it. They're going to continue doing it. What happens? There's this guy called Gamaliel who comes and tells the Sanhedrin, don't punish them. Don't, don't do anything to them. If they're really sent from God, you're fighting against God, let them go. But they didn't fully listen to him. They do punish the apostles before they let them go. In Acts 5 verses 40 and 41, this is what we read. His speech, Gamaliel's speech, persuaded them, the Sanhedrin. So they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Severe whipping. Your back would be ripped open. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Hey, this is a taste of what you will get even more if you continue speaking. So their backs are bleeding. They're weak, exhausted. Notice their response. Verse, it's continuing. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Backs are bleeding. They're in pain. They're saying, you have counted us worthy to suffer for you, Jesus. Remember that if you're going through a tough marriage. Remember that if you're going through tough health issues and still want to follow Christ. Remember that if you're going through a tough job. Remember that when you're going through suffering, Lord, don't want to turn my back on you. The suffering doesn't make any sense to me, but you are ordaining this for me. Help me not to lose my joy. Help me to still walk with you. When we have that kind of an attitude, the Holy Spirit will produce that joy because one of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Joy. We cannot create this joy on our own. I'm just going to put up a smile before others. This is a deep inward disposition that the Holy Spirit alone can produce and he will produce for those who submit to the word of God. Paul and Silas were beaten up, put in stocks in prison 
being their hands and legs were stretched. Midnight, they're singing hymns. Acts chapter 16, verse 25. And the same Paul would write to the Philippian church later in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in his name, believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Very important verse, Philippians 1.29. Now the Philippian church, when received the letter, they would know it is possible because we saw Paul do that when he first came to preach the gospel to us. That word granted is the word gift. Just as you've been gifted to put your faith in Jesus, that gift also includes the call to suffer for him. We love the gift of faith. But we cannot say I'll only take one part and exclude the other. It has been granted. This was not solicited. It was granted to believe and to suffer. And that the comfort is when we suffer and we ask, you know, Lord, can you understand my pain? So those tears that are coming, I have a lot of fears, uncertainties. I don't know what the next day is going to bring. Do you understand, Lord? Or like sometimes we say, Lord, you stand far off. But I want you to know, Jesus feels the pain. How can I say that with certainty? When the Apostle Paul was persecuting Christians and going on the where to Damascus to inflict more pain. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. And in Acts chapter 9 verse 6, Jesus calls out, Saul, Saul, that was his Hebrew name. Why are you persecuting me? He wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was only persecuting his followers. But Jesus so identifies with his people, he says, I feel the pain. When you hit one of mine, I feel the pain that should cause us to pause when we attack, especially other believers. You're attacking Jesus. Remember when you're attacking other believers with your words and your actions. You're attacking Jesus Christ himself directly. Remember that. But the comfort is he feels the pain. So if you think, I'm all alone in the suffering. No one understands my pain. He does understand. Go back to your homes and read Acts 9 verse 6. In the Old Testament it says, in all their affliction, God was afflicted as Israel was going through their pain. So the first motivating truth, why we can rejoice, is that we share with Jesus in our suffering. Second, we rejoice because Jesus is returning in glory. Look at the end of verse 13. After saying, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, Peter gives a second motivating truth why we can be joyful so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We live for Jesus. We are created for Jesus, created in Jesus, redeemed in Christ, through Christ. We live for him, which means our desire must be Jesus to be glorified. Jesus is returning in glory. Let that motivate you to rejoice even as you suffer for him. That's what Peter is saying. And guess what? When Jesus returns in glory, we too will be sharing in that glory. Paul writes in Colossians 3 and verse 4, when Christ who is in you, who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we rejoice. We know the suffering is 
not the end, but glory awaits us. This suffering is a gateway to the glory. These disappointments, these rejections that we face, and as we still endure, are a gateway into glory. The joy that awaits us, that what the Bible calls us, unspeakable joy that awaits believers when Christ returns or when we are called home, whichever happens first. It's so great that this suffering is nothing to be compared with that joy. That's why Paul said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Romans 8 verse 18. So we, we rejoice today, not because of the suffering of today, but in the light of what awaits those who persevere without turning their backs on precious Jesus. That's the idea. We have a great reward that awaits us. Jesus Christ himself in glory. That's the reward. And not the streets of gold and you know the crowns that we wear. It's all fine. But you know what? Jesus in his glory. That's what everything is all about. Everything is all about. So it's worth suffering for him. But we need to be well prepared to suffer, to endure suffering when it comes. So that's why Peter reminds us of two things. Be prepared. Don't be surprised when it comes. And two, be joyful when it comes. He gives two motivations how we can be joyful. Number one, we are co-participants with Christ himself. Suffering and second, Christ returns in glory and we will also be sharers of that glory. It's truths like these that kept believers like Raul and Taylor remain steadfast and joyful without turning back during those times of intense suffering. It's those same truths that will keep you and I to remain steadfast and joyful as well when suffering comes. Jesus said, no one who puts a plow, puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Luke 9.62 You cannot cut a straight furrow if you keep looking back. No looking back. That's what Jesus says. And he gives three words of warning in Luke 17.32. Just three words. He says, Remember Lot's wife. Just three words. For those of you who know, Genesis 19, go home and read if you're not aware. Lot's wife was delivered out of Sodom by the angels. But you know the problem was she left her heart back in Sodom. So she turned back, became a pillar of salt. So Jesus warns, don't be like Lot's wife. Don't turn back. That The context in Luke 17 is set when, during the time of tribulation when Jesus returns all the suffering that will come across. At that time too, he says, don't turn back. Don't turn back. True believers, even though they're weak and fall often by the grace of God they will persevere to the end because the Holy Spirit will keep them faithful to the end. The glory goes to the Spirit of God to sustain us. He started the work. He will finish it. Let's make sure we are true believers. Those who genuinely love Jesus and treasure Him with our lives and the best proof is how we view and endure suffering. If you are here this morning, far away from Jesus Christ, and you hear a message like this and you say, if this is what it's going to be to follow Jesus, 
I don't want this. I just want you to remember the trade-off. For a few temporary years of pleasure, you can turn your back on Jesus. But for eternity, for those who turn their backs on Jesus, there is nothing but suffering, unending suffering. The Christian life suffering has a shelf life. It expires when you expire. But if you die without Jesus, there is no calendar to turn. There is no vacation. There is no good times around the corner. Unending, unmitigated, conscious, eternal, horrific suffering in the place that the Bible describes as hell where you will face God's unending wrath for all your sins, all the words you spoke, all the thoughts you've had, all the good deeds you failed to do, everything. So, I invite you to come to the one who took that wrath and who will stay with you without abandoning you when you go through suffering now. Father, I pray that you would Help us to endure suffering. And even as we, in a few minutes, pray for our brothers and sisters who are going through much suffering, Lord, help us not just to take the prayers only for them, but also in our hearts. Pray that we will also suffer well. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen.